WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I forgot. I forgot what I was supposed to do. That's the part where I'm supposed to talk. Is that what I'm supposed to do? It's been a long time. It has been a while. But we are back. Spooky South Coast returns to the airwaves. What a great show we have lined up for you tonight. For those of you who are wondering uh, where we've been, we've been off the air for NFL football, but all that stuff is off the air Saturday nights now. We're back in our regular time slot until, I don't know, until baseball moves us around. It's always something. It is. But we did do a special podcast-only show a couple weeks ago, uh, and if you go to SpookySouthCoast.com, and you definitely want to go to SpookySouthCoast.com this week. We'll talk about that more in a little while. But if you go to SpookySouthCoast.com, you can download our special podcast-only show that we recorded live at Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, just because we were there anyway, and we had some cool people there and some microphones, so we thought we'd do a show. We uh, had our, one of our guests tonight, Chris Balzano, was there with us, as well as Jeff Belanger, and I think it was probably 45 minutes of you know, degrading each other and... You know, talking. We, I think we talked a little crap about your book. I think uh, we were on the cusp of brilliance and we fell short. As we were always. almost there. No, I mean, although I do, like I say, if you if you listen to it, and I suggest you listen to it. Go to spookysouthcoast.com. Uh, just for the mere fact that uh, <clears throat> my little singing interlude, which somehow made it into the uh, podcast at the end, it's kind of like if you uh, if you make it to the end of the credits and there's that last little scene. That also proves that you're the only person that lets the MP3 play all the way through. I am. I am. Actually, it's because I'm like too involved in what I'm doing. All of a sudden, is that me singing? <laughs> so yeah, I definitely heard all of it. So. For for those of you who might have missed it, uh, he gave his rendition of the "I'm a, I'm an amendment to be" from The Simpsons, and uh, of course we had to tag that on because it was just too good to just leave. We had to involve it somehow. So, right, so yeah. but uh, that show is out I'll there. I'll be taking requests actually during this show if anyone wants me to sing. Sure, sure. We'll have time at the end. All right. And uh, I just want to apologize again because it seemed like we were, you know, when we were talking about your book, I didn't want you to think I was, I was cracking on your book because it's a wonderful book and it's the whole subject of tonight's show. I know. I'm, and I'm, that's, I actually was saying I was not, I was going to take you off my Christmas card list or my Hanukkah list. I was going to, you were completely off. I was going to take you out of my MySpace. And then uh, you said, let's do a whole show, and I forgave you, and so yeah, this so is your penance right now. here. So. No, but somebody did say, gee, you were kind of rough on his book. No, it wasn't rough on his book at all. His book was great. Like I said, and then I've been shooting out jokes about, like, oh, well, I don't know, I don't edit my books. But, I mean, I'm completely fine with that aspect of it. I actually have read it and found out, wait a minute, someone came, went in and edited my editing. Mm. Um, and I'm not just saying that. It's, they did. And if that's what people have to complain about, go ahead. Yeah, no You kidding. know what I'm saying? I mean, like, that's, you know. It also means that they were so engrossed in the story, too, that they, you know. That these things caught their eye. Because generally, if you're reading a book and not paying attention, you just breeze through it, and you don't really catch on. Well, between you know zombies and, and killers and, and ghosts, I'm hoping people aren't noticing commas. But and, and puckwudgies. And puckwudgies. That yeah. was, see, that was my theory. It's the puckwudgies went in and they caused I all I think they did. Those 
darn puck wedgies. People are going to wonder uh, what we're talking about here, but you'll find out all about it tonight because we have, he's the puck wedgie guy. I am the puck wedgie guy. That's what he's fast becoming you know, known as. Uh, in radio uh, podcasts, uh, <laughs> done in people's living rooms throughout the Midwest and the South, I am the puck wedgie guy. So. Yeah, so, but uh, here you know him as Chris Balzano, the administrator of the, is that director? No, we, director, yeah, we were director, director, director of the director. Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website and author of Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. And we will be talking about the Freetown State Forest and some of the crazy things that have gone on there, both paranormal and just not normal. And uh, we will get into all that tonight. And you're welcome to share any of the experiences you might have had uh, in the Freetown State Forest or anywhere in that area, 508-996-0500, And for those of you who aren't familiar with who we are, I'm Tim Weisberg. With me is the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Go ahead, Matt. Be unsilent for a second. Oh, hi, hi. There you go. And we have uh, science advisor Matt Moniz here as well. What's up, people? And uh, what we do is we talk about the paranormal here each and every Saturday night from 10 to midnight. And if you want to catch some of our previous shows, if you're new to Spooky South Coast, just go to our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can download them all there soon to get much easier. Thanks to one of our in-studio guests who is here with us tonight, Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com. It's linked up to SpookySouthCoast.com, so you want to go check that out. And uh, we got latest episode up there is, uh, is Nick Redfern. Yeah. And some new stuff coming up soon. New stuff. Sure, sure. I'm an internet guy. Uh, yeah, new episode is coming two two eight. We're gonna kick it off with Greg Bishop doing a 2007 year in ufology look, in depth look at all the big stories from the past year, nice. starting with the O'Hara story, ending with the Japanese in quotes disclosure story, all the UFO stories of the past year. What are the big picture analysis of what these stories mean? To the field of ufology, a lot of people, you know, they just want to recap. They want to say, oh, this is what happened, then this happened, but we were looking at it. What does it mean, you know? Mm-hmm. Where can we look back on this? What did the O'Hare story mean for ufology in the big picture as we go forward to close the decade out? And, and not only that, but the trends that we're seeing, you know, the increase in activity where, you know, I heard uh, no less than Art Bell say a, a couple of weeks ago on his prediction show. He's going back over the predictions from last year, and somebody predicted there would be a huge increase in UFO sightings in 2007, and you know he gave him a bong on that one and said that's not the case. But all you have to do is go into the mainstream media and, and do like a Google news search and see how many sightings there have been. In your opinion, have there been an increased number this year, more so than in past years? I think the biggest trend that we noticed in 2007 as far as UFOs go is that uh, – the, the finally, for the first time since 9-11, UFO subject finally broke back into the mainstream. Since 9-11, the UFO subject had been way under the radar as far as mainstream news goes. But the O'Hare story, UFO subject burst back into the mainstream. Every subsequent story after that got considerable media play. The Symington story, the Roswell-Hout uh, affidavit story, the press conferences in November for disclosure. So we're seeing that ufology finally got back into the mainstream and they're kind of back where they were pre-9-11, which is huge for the field because it had been suffering since 9-11 up until 2007 with uh, sort of a malaise, if you will, where it was only the UFO people that were interested in it and it wasn't getting the mainstream play that it had before. All right, so definitely want to check that out, banalofamerica.com, and uh, and you can get three seasons' worth of audio up there, and you've had uh, some great guests in the past. Tell somebody some of the guests you've had. Oh, geez, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, Brad Steiger, Jim Mars, we've had him on three times. Uh, we have the holiday special with Stan Friedman every uh, the, the Saturday before Christmas. We have Stan Friedman on every Saturday before Christmas. Oh, who else? Nick Redfern, like you said, Lauren Coleman. 
um, Greg Bishop. I, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. Andre Eglishon, fantastic uh, writer about the Federal Reserve System. He's been on. We cover it all. Bigfoot, UFOs, conspiracy theory. We're going to be getting into ghost stuff soon. We're going to have Jeff Bellinger on in a little while. Um, just, just a whole host of stuff. You can find all those at beenallofamerica.com. B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. There you go. And so definitely check it out. We have it on the blog at SpookySouthCoast.com. But there'll be a new link to it soon in, in just a couple of days because Tim has done an excellent job redesigning our website. And we're going to relaunch it this week because this week, well, actually coming up in, I think it's the beginning of next week, but it's our second anniversary. We've been on the air for two years now. Two years they haven't figured out what we've been doing here on Saturday nights. And the station management hasn't come and knocked down our door. So we've been getting away with it, so we figured, hey, you know, we'll we'll redesign the website, make it easier, and uh, almost pretend we're a real radio show. What do you think, Matt Moni? Is, uh, you know, two years? Are you, are you proud? You, you actually, you have to wait a little longer to celebrate your two-year anniversary because you, you came on this horse a little bit late. Yeah, but I'm so proud of what you guys did. <laughs> I know, but we'll have it's just an excuse to have two parties. We'll have our <laughs> second anniversary party and then the Matt Moni's second anniversary party. And then in March 22nd is the tentative scheduled date for our our special 100th episode, which I would have had no idea how many episodes we'd done if it hadn't been for Tim, you know, when he was redesigning the website, putting, you know, over 90 episodes. It's over 90 episodes? Where have I been? But uh, we will celebrate our 100th episode uh, sometime in March, and we're going we're gonna to do it up big. We're going to try and uh, have a little party and a little get-together, maybe do a live show, live broadcast out there so people can, can come and enjoy themselves and, you know, we can drink on the air. Wait, no, no, I can't do that. All right, well, why don't we take our first break of the night. When we come back, we will get serious. We'll talk about dark woods, cults, crime, and the paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. We have Chris Balzano, the author of the book here, as well as former detective Alan Alves, who investigated many of the cases out there in the woods uh, over the years. And we'll talk to both of them about what's been going on. And we'll also get later on in the week and weird into some stories about uh, UFOs, some of the stuff Tim was talking about, the, the Texas UFO, for example, and a new one seen out in Turkey that you can catch the video on YouTube. If you want to check that out during the commercial, go to SpookySouthCoast.com. We have a link there as well. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about this case that happened here in New Bedford earlier this week that might have some sort of uh, dark undertones, maybe even some cult undertones to it. We'll get into all that and more here on Spooky South Coast. Never enter the woods. That is where they wait. They put their backs to the woods and see how long they can wait before getting scared. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Do your very best not to scream. That is some really, really creepy crash test dummies. <laughs> I thought they were creepy. All no. that, did, did you play around with that, or did they like do a oh, new version of the song? I played around with it a little bit. But okay. You know, that guy's a pretty big guy. I don't know if you want to make him angry like that. <laughs> he, he may be Canadian, but he's awfully tall. I don't really fear Canadians. Okay. So That's not what you're all about. I know. Not <laughs> t- take off, eh? All right. So uh, we are Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with that was the uh, the lovely tones of the silent assassin, Matt Costa, who's been itching to get back on radio. He's been, di- he's been talking up a storm lately. So uh, he, I know he's going to have some questions for tonight's show as well. 
and also science advisor Matt Moniz here as always. And uh, I'll just give you a rundown of everybody that's in the studio so that uh, you'll know who's here. We have Tim Banal off to the side who can just jump into my mic if he ever has any questions or any any points in the discussion because we especially will be talking about some UFO sightings as well. Uh, we have former Detective Alan Alves who now runs South Coast Hypnosis Center. You can go to their website, southcoasthypnosis.com, and and all the services that you offer, the you know, to help people stop smoking, to help people lose weight, anything that hypnosis is, you know, used for. And we talked last time you were on all about hypnosis. And the main key that you said is you can't be hypnotized unless you want to be. So if anybody wants to be, southcoasthypnosis.com, that's the place to go. Linked up on spookysouthcoast.com as well. You want to throw out the phone number too, Alan? Yeah, the number is 508-646-6069. So there you go. Give him a call on Monday because he's Please here do. now. He's not He's not taking any phone calls tonight unless you want to call into this show. Chris Balzano is here as well. Uh, he's the author of the book that we'll be talking about tonight, Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. You can pick it up at local bookstores. Any luck? I know you're – No, it was closed. Ah, okay. Yeah. But uh, all, I, I swear all the ones in Dartmouth probably carry it because, you know, the, it's a little bit further to get to a real bookstore around here. It's not like up where you live where there's one on every corner. Yeah, we're real educated out there in <laughs> And, of course, Lucky's here as well, an old friend of the show, and, and he's waving to the microphone. Hello. He also nods at drive throughs folks. Do you like fries with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How you been? I'm doing pretty good. All right. Keeping busy. And uh, you were recently at Lizzie Borden as well and some, some cool stuff going on while you were there? Uh, yeah. Uh, Lizzie Borden and I went to uh, for uh, New Year's and uh, spent some time there with uh, Matt Moniz and uh, did a little investigating and... Uh, had a few things happening uh, pretty late at night, probably around three three thirty in the morning. But uh, when when we were there, I don't think we addressed it on the show because a lot of it happened afterwards when we recorded that program a couple weeks ago. But no matter what room we were in, we were hearing sounds in other rooms, and we know there was nobody in the house because it was just the four of us and the doors were locked. Uh, but when we were downstairs, we heard a baby upstairs, like a little goo goo type noise. And then when I think I was packing up the radio equipment in the dining room, I think you guys were in the kitchen. And we could hear a woman singing on the second floor. So, you know, just a lot of little creepy stuff right. like there's that. A, there's a lot of noise uh, other than the beeping of the uh, the, the phone machine, the, the engine mm-hmm. machine. There's a lot of noise on the video that I took. Unfortunately, it's not synced up to where we were. Um, so I don't know when we were on the floor, when we weren't on the floor. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, noise there and a lot of, like... The camera you were running in the basement? The camera, I was running a camera in the basement the entire time. Our thoughts being <clears throat> that's where they seem to hide out when you guys go yeah. investigate the upper floors. There's a lot of talking, a lot of banging, a lot of footsteps. Right before um, I come down to shut down the camera, there's actually footsteps running down the stairs. Um, and I've listened to it like a few times. I've watched it. Nothing. You don't see anything move. But you hear these footsteps, and then you hear my big Ophi footsteps coming down. The, like, <laughs> and this, as if something was, you know, like two steps in front of me saying, let's go. So I'll have to share that and with you guys when I prepare it all. You know none of us were running. No, yeah. no, none of us were running. I actually, okay, I was going to say, we were all down in the basement, and we all heard what sounded like a small kid running around in the kitchen. You could hear right. the footsteps and the voices. Jeff Belanger was the first one up the stairs, followed by me, then I believe you and Weisberg. Now, that was one incident when we all all heard the same thing, correct? And Right, and then we all heard the same. We described it differently, but we all basically heard the thing during the end of the podcast. You know, we heard that sighing or that, that heavy breathing or whatever it was, and we were all kind of... Correct. What is that? It stopped our conversation, actually. Yeah, we had a, uh, a lot of we had activity on the stairs at the boarding house when we were there last. We actually had footsteps walking up and down the stairs, and uh, suddenly someone was actually banging on the rails on the way up and down the stairs for about two or three minutes. 
and I haven't reviewed all the audio yet, but I was asking a couple questions about who it was and who was there and stuff like that. It's definitely uh, been playing with us the last few times. Well, this was also when they were renovating a little bit, too. They were doing some painting in there, too, so I'm sure it spruced up a little bit of the activity, something in there. Did you notice toys being moved up in the uh, Dalton room? Yes. Actually, uh, actually, I did. Actually, I, uh, I moved them and positioned them on purpose to different places, and then... I, I, I know you did the... The, the little things, but when we came back, these uh, I had moved some other stuff, and Jeff was in there before with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I put some of the toys back when I when him and I came back. They were brought back out of the toy box and back onto the floor. When I found them, when I was uh, I don't even actually when I was in there and uh, I didn't notice there was actually any toys there at all. I was there with my uh, one of co-investigator Casey, and she didn't see any of the. Um, the stuff down the floor either, and I went back in there, probably around two o'clock in the morning, just to like walk around, and there was, yeah, and the, and like they were they were like visible now, and I was just like, I asked her, I was like, were they there? She's like, no. I was like, well, where were they? Like, where, where'd they even come from? Like, I looked over in that corner, and there was nothing there, and well, uh, it, it's it's just odd that I didn't know there was toys up there until that one moment. The uh, the room we're talking about is the Jose and Knowlton room, available for overnight stays. Go to lizzie-borden.com or give them a call, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. And uh, like like Lucky said, they are doing some renovation there, so it might be hard to get in for right now. But, you know, those spirits are going to still be active after that renovation's wrapped up. So, and, you know, Chris, that, that house is, you know, not that far from the from the Freetown State Forest. It's a couple of miles. And technically within, uh, you know, what used to be Freetown. Yeah. So, you know, Fall River is definitely actually a part of Freetown. Now, we've talked about this in the past, but, you know, you don't come from around here. You're not one of us. No, I'm an outsider. Yeah, so, but, you know, you were drawn into this area from all the reports you were getting through mm-hmm. MassCrossroads.com. And at what point, though, did this all start to click in your head that, you know, there's a story to be told here? Um, I would probably say it started when I was working on my Cursed County article, mm-hmm. uh, which has been up, and it was just, what do I keep in, what do I cut? And there was just so much information that I had gotten either secondhand or thirdhand or, hey, have you heard about this? There was so many little emails that were shooting out just like little bits. Um, and I, I started to notice people were getting maybe names wrong mm-hmm. or areas wrong, or you know, especially in cemetery activity. I just started to say there's really something odd about this. Um, about this you know, and then, of course, finding Chris and, and his stuff on the Bridgewater Triangle. Sure, I started Chris to be Kevin, like, yeah. oh, so this is not just you know, me getting this and kind of information – you know, through emails and activity. This is something that's, like, true. There's something out there that other people are observing. And it was about that time that my boss came into my office, and he's like, have you heard of Freetown? And I, you know, I said, no. And he's like, yeah, go do some research on it. And he, you know, was kind enough usually to let me do research during work hours instead of working. Yeah. Um, And so I started doing it, and, you know, I started finding little bits and pieces and things here, but there wasn't that much out there. Uh, And then he comes in a little while, and he's like, Oh yeah, you want to get that book by uh, that Alves guy? Um, um, you know, do some research on him. I said, well, what's his name? Well, Alan Alves. Once I, you know, Google searched Alan Alves, you know, A L L E N Alves for 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 I finally came across uh, Alan, and a lot of the articles, and of course, all the articles um, were very straightforward crime stuff that was happening. But they started to kind of talk about this dark cloud over the forest. Went out there, investigated. Uh, once, uh, one Halloween, you know, kind of found that same thing with the investigators we had. You know, they got this very heavy sense about the place. Didn't go anywhere near uh, into the forest now that I've actually seen it and walked through and, and seen, you know, just how vast it is. 
and probably, well, almost a year later, Alan's uh, daughter actually contacted me via email and said, "Hey, you know, I, I was, you know, I was looking for my site probably for the for the business was, you know, googling my you know, things, blah blah blah. I found your site. I think it's hilarious. Like, here's a story. She actually gave me a story that she had, and then said, you know, basically, would you like to talk to him? I think she was intrigued by the fact that I thought that Alan was kind of a conflicted character. Like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? <laughs> we all know he's a bad guy now, but um, <clears throat> and." I remember I was actually just telling Tim this. Tim and I actually live about a mile apart from each other on the way in. Um, I remember it very specifically. I just found out my son was on his way. I was uh, down with my in-laws in, uh, in Florida. I was just finishing up the Curse County article. and was like, you know what? I'm going to send this to Alan and ask him if he wants to work with me. And then, boom, there you go. It was just kind of, you know, <clears throat> it, was the, it was the night before the first or the, the 04, the last Patriots uh, Super Bowl game. And we met and we talked, and I went, wait a minute, there's a lot more to this. And so now, do you think the Patriots are going to win now? Because, you know, the I do. It's all, it's all coming, yeah, full circle. Oh, so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But so, Alan, you had over, what, 25 years' experience on, on the force? In uh, 30 years. 30, 30 years. years. Yeah. And uh, how was it that you got drawn into these crimes? Was it just that you were the, the person on at that time, and over time you just developed, you know, the, the skills to investigate cult crime? Well, actually, um, yeah, uh, it, we started having weird stuff happen. Well, we always have weird things happen. I think uh, we're on the cutting edge of weird, if you ask me. You know, and people say things, weird things happen in California, then move across the country. But it seems like Freetown got it before California. Um, so weird things started happening. Probably when I first got on in, uh, well, I got on an auxiliary in 71 and full-time in 73. And um, so I used to ride around with Lieutenant Allison at the time. And he, he loved the state forest, looking for stolen cars. And I, I was have to ride with him. And, I you know, I was a young patrolman. I, I wanted to go out catch speeders and criminals. And he'd ride through the state forest, and it was boring. And then I'd go like, hey, what about those people? What are those people doing there? They got robes on. And, oh, those are leftover hippies from the 60s. They're partying. You know? so I said, okay. So then, you know, after three months when you don't have to ride with the regular police, you had your own cruiser. So, uh you know, I started looking into it, and then I started finding all this weird stuff and satanic writings and bones and stuff, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? So I started looking into it, then I found uh, there was this chief in Tiflin, Ohio, that was uh, experiencing the same thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was a, a big thing years ago, I don't know if you remember, when they found all these cows in a, in a pasture, and there were absence of blood. There was no mm -hmm. blood in any cows. Oh, that, that was him to investigate it, and they thought it was UFOs or something like that. But, uh, you know, when I contacted him, because we, you know, we, I had a similar incident on a smaller scale, and um, he said that it was a, they didn't want to mention it in the paper or anything else, but he was working on a satanic cult that were taking the blood from these animals and using it for sacrifices. And I said, like, okay, uh, so I'm dealing with another nut. So, you know, I talked to him a little while, and I hung up, and then... Uh, I experienced more and more stuff, so I called him, and then there was Sandy Glant in San Francisco, and she was working on the same thing. And then we got involved and uh, worked out with Cult Awareness Network, and so I started looking up. I was in the library, just like in those movies that you see, you know, when somebody sees something satanic, they go open up those old books in the library. And, like, I hate to read, uh, but I had to read, you know. But I did. I loved to read your book. Your book was excellent. I read that one day. I read that one day. It was a great book. Uh, and so I started reading up on this stuff, and uh, then what started 
things would happen, crimes would happen, and the paper would pick it up, and uh, I'd say, you know, we found all this cult activity and stuff like that, and then everybody, everybody, they laugh at me, and I, I was ridiculed. I was called uh, Ghostbusters and Cult Cop. You know, mm-hmm. fellow officers used to go, "Hey, come down on the Cult Cop or the Ghostbuster." Until things started happening in their neighborhoods and so forth, and then they would call me, and then all of a sudden they would say, um, then the newspaper would go, Detective Al, the expert on cult activity, and i go, oh, my God. Of course, it fed my ego real good, <laughs> but I said, like, I've got to be an expert, so I started reading more and, and learning more, and uh, things started happening, and then I have to investigate more, and people call me all over, and pretty soon uh, it was not just in our area, the people in New York would call me, then Matamoros, Mexico, when they had an incident over there, and then in England, and all of a sudden I was... Uh, and the one I, in Switzerland? Yeah, I, all of a sudden I was a national expert and world expert, but... Uh, and, and these crimes, uh, these rituals, whatever was going on, they seemed to have a lot of similarities from location to location? Yeah, and, it, and it was, the strange part was, you would take, and uh, I was talking to Matt about it too, he was talking about it, but you would take someone that uh, said they were involved in a cult and this happened and that happened and that happened. You go like, wow, that's very hard to believe. Mm-hmm. But when you get someone, Sandy Glenn in San Francisco's got it, and the chief in Tiflin, he's got someone, and they're saying the same exact thing in the rituals, exactly what happened, what was done, right to the letter that, you know, there was something to it. And, and you're talking about a time, obviously, before the Internet and the amount of research that you had to do and, and just the network that you had to create to combat these crimes – can you just fathom how it must have been that this organization of cults existed, that they could that they could have all these same similarities and, and have this kind of communication and still be underground? Uh, yeah, but they've been around for centuries, really. It's, it's not something new. It's something that's always been there that uh, no one was aware of. I think that what it really points at, too, is not only that, you know, that people all across the country are participating in this, but by its very nature, occult uh, practices, things that are outside of the... Uh, the, the normal practice of religion, they generally have a lot of solo practitioners, a lot of solitary people that study, a lot of people that take something and then twist it. So for things to be that formalized and for things to be that um, consistent from coast to coast and from country to country means that we're talking about something that's a lot more organized than really kind of comfortable admitting. And a lot of the times, you know, what we've seen uh, between media portrayals and, you know, some of these these minor crimes that cults are somehow tagged into, what we're seeing is kind of the low-level underlings, the beginners, the, you know, the, the people who aren't really that deep involved because the people that are deeply involved, they're keeping their noses clean. They don't want to get found out. They, they are to a certain extent, but uh, what happens, I think why it has grown more, especially the 70s and 80s and so forth, was... Uh, before, when you had someone that, uh, we'll say like you had a child molester or you had a, a serial rapist, or so, you, could, you could look down the street and you could go, <laughs> that guy's a child molester. You could point somebody out. Uh, they, they, looked, they were in uh, like an internal conflict. But then all of a sudden, here comes a religion that they could belong to, and it says uh, killing people is okay, molesting children is okay, this is okay, and, you know, um, there's, you know you're better to... Uh, to rule, to rule in, in hell than serve in, in heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now what it, it, this, here was a religion that was able to rationalize their deviant behavior. So, so they don't so, show those outward signs yeah, that you might look for in and, and, and they walk amongst us. And, and that, that, was, that was a strange part. Is there any kind of clue, though, that, that, that 
if somebody wanted to know if somebody was involved, is there some some sort of sign that would stick out in somebody's head? Like, okay, you know, obviously upside down crosses hanging on the wall instead of right side up crosses are, are a big giveaway. But you know, the best part about it, and, and, and the fortunate part was that when Alan and I when Alan and I met, I had just come off working with a lot of uh, uh, criminal youth and a lot of gang culture, and so I mean, it was very very similar to. Um, gang culture in, in, in jail or in, lo- in some kind of lockup. Mm-hmm. They do a very good job hiding it, and yet the subtlety of it is known by a few who get out and can kind of tell you some hints, um, but it also adapts so quickly and it changes so quickly that only really the initiated know what's going on. Same thing with, yeah. I was going to say that's yeah. the same thing you get with any secret type of society. Now, I myself, as you guys know, I'm a Freemason. Why these groups that is a um, a secretive fraternity. Oh. Just, uh, kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. I got a Freemason sticker on my car. Yeah. <laughs> it actually is mine, I but know. we'll leave that. That's the track you <laughs> but, but any secret society, uh, like I said, being Freemasons, and I don't care if certain people disagree with me, but they're generally a um, an organization that is a charitable organization. The main drive is to help out people in charity. And yeah, they... And even though they're secretive about who their people are that are part of it, they're not necessarily bad. But any type of secretive society, they they can get highly organized, and they are highly organized by nature because of you're trying to keep the secret. Right, right. And, but just, once again, it goes back to, but if, if that secret is being held in Freetown and in California and in Ohio, then there definitely is a network that we're not – that we're not seeing. So, yeah. I Hence the word society. Hence the word society. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like like you were saying with the gangs, though, they have, like, certain colors and, you know, like, gangs have the little subtle signs that they have that they can recognize one another. Uh, so right. with these cults, it's the same type of thing. I mean, they can recognize one another even if, if we can't catch on. I think, I think a lot of it also is that the, the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand is doing. So we're talking about different levels of organization. Mm-hmm. So... I think that, uh, and you know, Alan talked about rotating memberships as well, so that only really a certain few know everything that's going on. Much, you know, much like the like a, a other kind of societies like that. So uh, you wouldn't even necessarily like some people may be very blatant to other people, and other people might be, you know, right under your nose. It could be me. Well, why don't we take our last break of this hour, and when we come back, we'll talk about specifically a couple of the. The crimes that occurred uh, with the state for- Freetown State Forest as a backdrop. If you have any questions or any uh, comments, any experiences you want to share, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Welcome back into Spooky South Coast, and we are talking with Chris Balzano, author of Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest, as well as former Detective Alan Alves of the Freetown uh, 
Police Department. We're going to talk some more about the crimes and the cult activity uh, until we take the break at 11 o'clock for the CBS News. Then on the other side of that, we'll have our little news segment, The Week in Weird, and then the rest of our number two will be dedicated to some of the paranormal stories of what goes on out there in the woods. And you've heard some of them here before, but uh, we'll have some all new ones that you haven't heard. And we'll also take your calls at 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And if you have anything that you'd like to share and, and you don't feel comfortable, uh, you can always email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. And, Chris, why don't you give out your email address as well, too? Sure. Alosa1066 at MassCrossroads.com. So that's A-L-O-S-A-1066 at MassCrossroads.com. And they can just go to your website, too, and click on go it there my as website, well. MassCrossroads.com. And so now, of course, the biggest crime that is uh, associated with the Freetown State Forest, the one that people around here still talk about to this day, is the, the Carl Drew case. And, uh, Alan, you were involved firsthand in that. Why don't you give us just a rundown of how it came about when it first came to attention and, and what the original, um, the original case centered around. Well, actually, the, um, I was not really in the major investigation because the, the, the actual murders took place in uh, Fall River mm -hmm. in Westport. Um, but I got involved in it when they, you know, all of a sudden they found one body they, and then they found another body, these three girls, and then the third one and so forth. And, um then they found out there was some kind of cult. And then they found out that, hey, they were operating in the Freetown State Forest. And that's when I got involved in it with uh, a good friend and colleague, uh, Paul Carey and Alan Sylvia from uh, Fall River Two Detectives. And uh, they were doing their rituals and so forth. And Kyle Drew was the head of this this cult. But um, I have my own reservations about that, but I don't want to say it on the air. Well, it's okay. I have no problems. These, yeah. these, these girls were, were prostitutes that were being killed. Uh, they alleged prostitutes, yes. And so they kind of centered around, you know, who it was that were controlling these prostitutes in the business sense. And, and then it just got a little bit deeper, and it turned out to be something more than just, you know, they work for me. Correct. Uh, and at what point did they – what was it that actually broke that connection to the cult? Do you remember? Uh, I don't recall. It's, you know, I've worked so many cases and so forth, and like I said, I wasn't the lead investigator mm -hmm. on that case. I just worked on it when they, as far as the rituals went in the, in the state forest. Um, but it was uh, Robin Murphy who was also uh, involved in it. Um, and uh, there's still some uh, some information out there whether Carl Drew was really in charge of those, you know, was responsible for those murders or was in fact Robin Murphy. Um I know that Robin Murphy was near genius, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, some people say that she uh, conned the whole district attorney's office. Um, and Carl certainly, certainly says that to yeah, this day. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. and, you know, and um, I mean, I really have no reason not to doubt him for the fact that uh, uh, I know that she was, in fact, uh, of genius material. Um, and al but, although we don't condone his point of view, Carl Drew has given a... a his side of things, it's on the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, if you go there, you can actually find, uh, in his own words, uh, posted through a friend of his. But it, it is up there, written in his own words, if you want to hear what he has to say and, you know, make your own judgments from it. I'm sorry, Alan, you were going to No, say. but I was just going to say that they had a book out there, Mortal Remains, mm -hmm. uh, about the book. But I, I, I think if you looked at that book and you looked at the real, the real story and the real uh, information and the police reports and so forth, you'll find that that book is not an accurate representation of what actually happened. 
Right. According to the book, uh, the two police detectives that were involved in it um, began to kind of kind of engross themselves in these entire underworld culture that was going on there, and very quickly found out that everyone on the street knew that there was a cult active, and they had actually witnessed um, several of the ceremonies themselves in the uh, in the apartment of of one of the uh, one of the people that's kind of in this you know society of of uh, prostitutes and, and drug dealers, and and then it was then an informant who you know, under, you know, kind of penalty, under threat of penalty, brought them out to the to the forest to show them the the uh, the, the shack that they had out there. And, and you disagree with, I mean, Alan wants to kind of not say too much, and I know that you've been very uh, vocal in, in what you found, and have you found that this kind of goes higher than, than the way it was originally perceived? It's, it's really kind of, I mean, I think it definitely goes higher in that um, they wanted the case solved. They wanted, he was a great fall guy. Um, he did nothing to, you know, outwardly uh, take away from the, you know, the Charles Manson-y type mm-hmm. uh, uh, persona that so many people have painted for him. He looked the part. He looked it, and he and he was, and, and Alan said it on numerous occasions. The guy did deserve to be in jail. I mean, he's oh, not, absolutely. He's he not was, innocent. It, it's not like he was walking around with a halo and, you know, mm-hmm. and someone mistook him. I mean, this was, he was, you know, by all accounts, a pretty vicious guy, um, by his own account, too. And... um I think that it was just you know he kind of it kind of got sweat up. They wanted to do it uh, quickly. They wanted to get it off the off. You know there was enough going on in that area at that time, and it was you know everyone who was potentially under the control of the other person, Robin Murphy, um, began to fold. Like whether it was police pressure, which there seemed to be a lot of, it was just brought back up because you know all those witnesses in that case against Carl Drew are now saying. The cops really forced us to testify. They said they were going to take our kids away. They said this was going to happen, that was going to happen. Robin Murphy was the key witness against him. Um, that you know, and and if it, it's not just Alan that says this, it's people. You know, everyone that I speak to about the case who has any authority says, you know, either on record or off record, we don't think Carl Drew did it. Well, you say you know he's kind of the perfect fall guy, and that he played up that role. I mean, how much of it do you think, knowing the the psychological profile of of Carl Drew, or just that? The type of person that's in that role in a cult, where you know you kind of—it's kind of expected of you. It's—it's it's part of the uh, the role that you play to build yourself up as this Manson-type character. And then now what happens is he actually gets to prison and realizes, whoa, wait, wait, this isn't right. really what I was bargaining for. And, and I think it also you know touches upon kind of the the very nature of a lot of the cult activity that's in the Freetown State Forest, which is, you know, there might be many hands at play. There might be Carl Drew was the you know kind of ringleader of this, mm-hmm. and yet being completely manipulated by uh, by Robin Murphy or by someone else. I mean, it's not once again if this was an isolated incident and these things didn't seem connected, then you could just say, well, really, it was just some pimp who took on the persona of a Satanist to kind of control his people. It seems like it was there was much more going on, and unfortunately, we can't find out what did Robin Murphy you know who was influencing Robin Murphy was Robin Murphy influencing people. It's kind of like. Um, you know, every time you every time you peel back a, a layer of it, it's kind of like, you know, the more accusations, more kind of levels of this. So, and and in your research for the book, I mean, how much mm-hmm. is the? I, I can speak firsthand from this because I've been out into the forest and I've seen some of the signs, at least what I think are signs. But how active do you think the cults still are in the forest? Not, today? I don't. I don't. Th- I think if you're if you're seeing a cult in the forest. Which people still are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's you know those lower level people. It's either people who are practicing their First Amendment right to that freedom was. of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's people who are inspired. Um, I think it's people who you know just say this is what we practice. I think it's people that think it's cool. The cult has moved on. 
The cult yeah. is the cult is not out of Massachusetts necessarily, or not out of this area. Well, we saw that but it's in moved on. what two thousand in Attleboro, uh, I think it was when they right. still had cult activity there, and that became another major case. And uh, even if you if you just follow you know some of the evidence of things, and, and even if you just follow where where Alan was asked to investigate, you know post. Um, you know, post the, the the Carl Drew murders and post some of those other cases, you can really kind of just track this this whole course of, of where the cult is and where it's going. And well, I mean, maybe not where it's going, but you can see that it's, it's definitely active. Still. Yeah, the cult did not end with Robin Murphy and Carl Drew. That's so it just moved on. And do you think that once it has moved on, uh, you know, do they still keep an eye on that area and see what's developing there, or do they just have to keep as far away as possible now because of the attention that's been shed on it? I think that it probably serves their purpose of of um, you know that kind of. You know, if if we can if we can look at the cult and yet not see it completely, mm-hmm. uh, and if it instills enough fear, then it kind of works other ways. Because I just wonder, so. even if there's these low level cults operating in there now, and even if it's just, you know, these religions, how long is it going to be until somebody steps into the you know the forefront that that front person position and starts trying to organize some of these groups and turning it into something more? I mean, as long as they're out there and they're still active, there's the potential that it could turn into something worse. Right, except for the fact that you know they've they've. They've moved on to bigger and better things in terms of, you know, you're now well, talking, you're well, now talking, you know, drug trafficking. You're talking about things where, you know, the cult is now seen a much more uh, profitable uh, way to go. Yeah. But way you're, to go you're talking about the, the one that was previously in place. Oh, you're saying like to unify all the dabblers? Can somebody come in there and, and do the same type of thing and just start from scratch and build their own? You know, or do you think that it's just? Yeah, oh, yeah. I think I think the potential is there. I mean, you see that all the time. There was, you know, the guy down in uh, in, in ended up in Florida. You know, who was in part of the vampire cult, who just was able to find like-minded people, and because he was charismatic. I mean, that's what the definition of a cult leader is: is someone who finds people who have at least a, a periphery kind of interest in it, and kind of, you know, knows the right words to say and how to get them together. And and with anything, whether any kind of movement like that. And another case that comes out of out of the forest is uh, is James uh, James Cater. James Cater. James Cater. Let everybody know about. about yeah. Um, well, do you want to? You can. Well, that that involved the uh, Mary Lou Arruda, which is a very famous case. It goes back to 1978, um, and I I was the first officer on the scene. As a matter of fact, uh, she was kidnapped on September 8th of uh, I believe it was September. It was September 11th. I'm sorry of 1978, and her body was found in the Freetown State Forest on November 8th, 1978. I remember that, those days distinctly uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it was my first homicide I investigated. Uh, Second, I I had a daughter about the same age, uh, about a year or two younger. And third, it scared the hell out of me because uh, two motorcycles found, you know, they came upon me and they said, hey, we've we found a, a girl tied to a tree with, with no head tied to the tree. And I said, oh, this kid's always playing jokes, you know, because really I, I remember I told you about the Bigfoot footprints that they had played tricks on me, and the kids had made footprints in the sand and had me searching that. Yeah, Moniz, thanks. So, so then, uh, <laughs> yeah, that might have been him. So, uh, and this was November 8th, and I said, it's a week after Halloween. It's a Halloween dummy, you know. So, uh, you know. They took me into the woods. They said, it's up that hill. We don't want to go. And I said, okay. So I went up there, and I went up there, and I went, oh, my God. And I was acting like those two kids that were scared. And, uh, you know, I just called out all the troops and everything. I got my camera and everything else. We worked on that investigation. Um, and I thought that would be the end of it. Uh, we had that suspect, James Cater, and we worked. The Rainham Police had developed him as a suspect. And to make a long story short, he was arrested and charged with a crime. But he ended up getting, uh, you know, some people get 
two bites of the apple, and I think he got about four or five of them because he kept getting trials, and uh, it went from uh, 1978. I think the last trial was probably in 1998, 1999, if I remember right. Yeah, he's kind of so he has this kind of like a boogeyman uh, persona um, in the community because he's like the guy that they can't keep down. He's had four his conviction overturned uh, three times, and they're hoping that the fourth one is. Uh, is the one that's going to stick, and it, that, that was pretty recent. I think 2004, um, I could be wrong about that, um, was when it, when he had his, either 97 or, or 04, was when he had his last trial that finally they're, they're hoping is going to stick. So, But he's been in jail the entire time. Thank goodness. And, and it's another one of those incidents where, you know, some of these locations that are around the country, these state forests, these, you know, these off-the-beaten-path type of places, they might have one story that's attached to them. Right. And for the Freetown State Forest to have so many of them that are attached to them, it's just, is it an evil place, Alan? Is that? <laughs> I don't know if we could say it's an evil place, but it's a strange place. It, it, it attracts the strangest and weirdest people. You know, I, I, all my career I kept trying to, why does things happen in that place? I used to always try and figure out. And then I, you know, but if you look at a map, and you look at the city of Nebeffa, which is about 100,000 people. You look at Fall River, which is about 100,000 people. You look at Taunton, I guess what's Taunton is about uh, maybe 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 people. So you have three cities, not to mention all the towns around there. And within 15 minutes, you could be in the most secluded area probably in the freaking state, mm-hmm. in the state forest, 15-minute ride. So, you know, with a population of three or 400,000 surrounding it, and you get there in 15 minutes, uh, with all those people, there's bound to be a weirdos on it, three or 400,000, they're attracted there. But And we uh, we made it from uh, Burlington and Woburn to to, uh, to Fairhaven, New Bedford, in an hour and 15 minutes tonight. Not going fast. Not not speeding by any means. And it's an even and so now shorter. Now you have to include Boston, Providence. Providence, yeah. You know, I, I mean, mean not Brockton. I, Brockton, not you know, I mean, it's... I don't want to throw any accusations out there, but, you know, Providence is a city that's had its uh, fair share of uh, right. suspected criminal individuals. And, you know, for their organization, you know, Freetown State Forest might make an attractive dumping ground you know, because it's it's close enough. Right. But you have to ask yourself, and this is, here is where it starts to get in. I think Alan and I probably deviate uh, on, on, on Cater. I think I probably maybe take the road that no one takes because whereas everyone says to Carl Drew – um, didn't do it. Whenever you ask anyone about James Cater, they say the guy's absolutely but he deserves to be in jail. He one hundred percent did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's something else going on with that case as well. I mean, he he abducted the girl from Brockton, and passed what four, four state forests that would be mm-hmm. easy easy to to commit his crime in. Um, why did he go to Freetown? Why did he choose Freetown out of out of all those places where he could have just gotten off twenty four somewhere else? What Massasoit there is? I mean, he could have gone, you know, kind of southwest towards towards uh, Miles Standish. I mean, there's other places that he could have gone, and yet he specifically went to Freetown. It's the magnet, Chris. It is, it, and and when it's even uh, sketchier when you think that he had been committed of uh, he'd been convicted of committing a very similar crime, although the worm, woman didn't die, um, and he did it. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, 15, 18 years. I'm not, I can't. Maybe he only served like six years, maybe ten years. I can't remember the exact. Mm-hmm. He committed this almost the same exact crime in the Merrimack Valley. And if you actually watch the kind of, you know, I did research on just following cults throughout Massachusetts and the, their appearances in newspapers, you have very a lot of cult activity in that time in the Merrimack Valley, which then basically disappears and then kind of 
refocuses again in southeastern Massachusetts. Coincidence? Cater does two almost identical crimes in two places right when those places are having you know heightened cult activity. I don't read the book. Find out. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. It is called Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. And uh, I know you've been making uh, a lot of the rounds of some of these yep. other shows we talked about earlier. But And, and they all must want to know, you know, what is Freetown and, and how do you explain it? I mean, because it's a wonderful community. Right, right. I always I explain it the, uh, and I go through the progression that I went through. I couldn't find it on a map. I had heard of Fall River. I had heard of Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Here's Fall River. See that little dot that's Fall River? Okay, there's not even a dot for Freetown. That's how I explain it. You know, I mean, that's, it's, you know, and it kind of, and just in the explaining of it, it really kind of accentuates exactly how odd it is that this much stuff would happen there. And I always say, don't be offended by this, I always say, I for, all, for all intent and purposes, Alan should have been Barney Fife. I mean, he should have, like, had his feet up. Wow. You know, deciding whether or not he was gonna, whether or not he was gonna get, you know, off his butt and arrest those teenagers for drinking in the woods, and instead, here's a man who investigated, you know, 18 homicides, not to mention all the assaults, not to mention all the rapes. I mean, this is a ridiculous amount of activity to happen in a place you can't find on a map. That's why they gave me more than one bullet. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't even have to keep it in a shared pocket either. No, no, I mean, he's he's absolutely right. Um, you know, if Freetown was anywhere else in the state. Um, we probably wouldn't have any problem, but if you, they did a study, the last study, of course, this was several years ago when I was on the department. There's 105 towns in, uh, in, out of the 351 cities and towns in, uh, in Massachusetts, there was 105 towns that were 25,000 or less population, and Freetown was the fifth most violent in the state, <laughs> which, now, now, I want you to also think about this, as, uh, if I can just get this in before break. If you're talking about now a cult who's trying to somewhat hide their activity or at least be aloof, what are those, those other towns? Boston, Brockton, Worcester, maybe Lawrence was in that list. All places that are large enough that their police department can handle homicides. Mm-hmm. That completely changes when you get to a town like Freetown because now you have complete outsiders on the state level who have to come and investigate under the jurisdiction of a district attorney. So if you want to commit crime and really have a whole bunch of people fumbling with the evidence, commit it in a small town where where the, the police force is not allowed, not even can't handle, because Alan can handle anything, not allowed to handle it. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> no, but that's, that's true. Uh, you know, if it's an attempted murder, it's a housebreak, the police department, but once it comes to a murder, the DA takes over and... Uh, the state police investigators and so forth. DA is DA is in charge of all homicide. And thank goodness we have a good DA now that I think things are going to work out. And that's and that's why you know the someone like the um, the highway killer was able to to kind of escape. Well, maybe that's one of the reasons why the highway killer was able to escape for so long is because incompetency. Well, in, right, because now you have all these different chefs with all these different agendas. Alan's agenda is to do his work and at the end of the day go home. All these other people have something to to kind of go for. All right, well, we thank you, Alan, for joining us and sharing and, you know, unfortunately dredging up some of these memories, but it's important that we do get these stories out there. Go out and buy that book. I'm telling you, it's a real good book. I enjoyed it. (laughs) All right, we'll be right back with more after the CBS News here on Spooky South Coast. Lost civilizations, extraterrestrials, myths and monsters missing persons, 
magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic, significant, and truthful to say. Keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Where can you go to find hot homemade knitted items? How about Knitbits at knitbits.etsy.com. A new baby in your life? Need a homemade knitted item for a shower gift? The Knitbits has you covered. Sweaters, bibs, booties, blankets, they've got it all. Want to be up on the latest trends? How about some of those funky, cozy socks everybody's wearing? Or knitted handbags and cell phone holders? If they don't have it at Knitbits, or if you want it in a different color, email them and they'll take care of you. That's knitbits.etsy.com. K-N-I-T-B-I-T-S dot E-T-S-Y dot com. Knitbits, for all your homemade knitting. People start screaming. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. I'm not afraid. You Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast, the big dark woods extravaganza. We're talking about dark woods, cult crime, and paranormal in the Freetown State Forest with the one and only Puckwudgie guy, Christopher Balzano, <laughs> director of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website. You can check that out at masscrossroads.com. Also sitting, us, sitting in with us, we have Tim Banal of banalofamerica.com, also linked up to spookysouthcoast.com. And Tim, why don't, we, uh, why don't we have you give everybody a little bit of a preview of what's coming on the all-new SpookySouthCoast.com? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, what, well, pretty much what I wanted to do was, uh, like you guys started out, what are you looking for, Bells? Stop confusing me. Nothing, We're on no. the radio. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, well, you guys like Lucky started confused out, me. I know. <laughs> we started out, uh, you guys started out as like a radio show, and I wanted to make sure, and your archive sort of just kept getting built as the show started. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it sort of uh, organically grew, Spooky Cell Coast. So I wanted to really dig into the website and take your archive and really put it together into something that someone who had just discovered the show could dig into and find all the episodes, be able to download the MP3s directly without having to be a podcast subscriber. Because a lot of people just don't want to get on iTunes, get a podcast uh, software thing. They just want to go to the website, grab the MP3s. That's what you're going to be able to do at SpookySouthCoast.com starting next week. Plus, of course, you'll still be able to get the streaming audio. You'll still be able to subscribe to the podcast feed. But let's say, you know, tonight you heard Alan Alves and you go back to the website starting next week, you'll be able to just go to the chronological guest listing and you'll be able to find Alan Alves very simply, and then you'll be able to click on the link and get right to the last episode he was on previous to tonight's show. So, And you can do that with all the great guests that have been on Spooky South Coast, like Kristen Gartland, Lauren Coleman, Jeff Belanger, Balzano here. <laughs> you'll be able to get a hold of all those guys. You'll be able to find all their episodes nice and easy, simple. That's kind of what the goal was. Keep it simple make it readily available for all the people who are just discovering spooky south excuse me spooky south coast now you know because your audience is growing all the time and as word gets out this internet radio revolution you guys are part of that in a way because you do offer the shows on mp3 and podcasting so you know take advantage of that we we like to consider ourselves you know more geared toward the internet community because we know you know when you are on an am signal in a city like new bedford you're only going to get a niche audience because a lot of people you know we hope that people are listening to us and tuning in and and saying gee i don't really believe in this stuff but i'm going to give these guys a chance to you know try to convince me uh but we know that you know it's a show that's geared toward a specific audience that that is looking for this information so and part of that is, you know, we're not going to change the, and we had talked about this a little bit, but we're not going to change the actual feed so that anybody that's getting it now, you'll yeah. still be able to get it. But one thing that I find very important, too, is uh, when I, and I don't know if I talked to you about this, when I put these episodes online, what I do is I actually load them up so that they're geared toward people who have dial-up service. Mm-hmm. So even if you have dial-up service, you can listen to this online. I know a lot of other shows will stop and buffer 50,000 times. And this doesn't do it. It's actually geared for people who have dial-up service, which for the rest of us that have actually stepped into the 90s, it actually <laughs> it actually just it, – it doesn't matter. It's, it's still a fast, seamless audio transition. So you know, we'll, it's going to be available to everybody that can get to a computer – whether it's, you know, you go to the library and you download it and take it home on a CD or whatever, you know, everybody will be able to get it. And, of course, it's a, it's a cool design. I mean, it's just the new buttons and everything. It's just it's really it really has the feel of what the show is all about. That yeah. feature also allows you to make your best of Balzano episode for yourself and put it into a, and put it into a CD, and sell, CD and sell it. We're, we're actually thinking contact about Contact John it. Horgan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. <laughs> All right, so yeah, stay tuned for that because next week is our second anniversary. Two wow. two years talking to you here every night, and Chris has been here for like ninety percent of those I episodes. Said it's ridiculous, I've, and I've heard. I've, I think I've heard every single one. I think there might be one or two that I. Uh, That's that more I than I've listened to. I know. I, I didn't say I enjoyed it. I just said oh, okay. you know I had it on this background noise. And and. Out of I all basically just listen to see if you're going to mention me. That's, <laughs> it's really that's, the that's only fine. reason why I'm ever. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but out, out of all of those shows that we've done, though, we only do it each week because of all of you out there listening and, and everybody that emailed us while we were off the air for the football games. You know, we appreciate it. We are in the process of sending out those bumper stickers. So I uh, don't think that we forgot you. So I'd also just like to say, sitting here, I'm already on. I'm already promoting the book. So you know that I'm not trying to butter you up. I think that. 
the way that you guys have have grown over the past two years um, is is uh, amazing, and I'm glad that I'm part of it. And I think that the fact that you guys are a terrestrial first radio station that's geared towards the internet really controls how you guys um, do the show, and which makes it so much different. And I feel um, better than a lot of the, the the shows that I'm hearing out there. While they're good. Um, a lot of them because it's like, okay, we'll call in, we'll talk. There's not this kind of like looking at each other. I know you guys do that as well. But mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that, that the fact that you guys are a, a radio station producing something and then putting it on the Internet um, really has kind of helped build the personality of Spooky South Coast into what it is, which is a great personality. Well, uh, thank you very much. Someone uh, I would date if I uh, – <laughs> <laughs> uh, If we weren't a radio if show. If we were a radio and, show and we with all Ben. So, yeah. But, but – uh, <laughs> One of the things that does bother me, and I, I support all these shows that are out there. I think it's great. It's it, All the different voices we can get in this field is, is excellent. But one of the things that bothers me about them is because they're not on a broadcast station, and, Tim, you're totally exempt from this. They, I appreciate that. They don't have uh, any journalistic integrity. Right. You know what I mean? They, they, they don't allow people to present multiple sides of things. If somebody comes on with a theory that they don't believe in, they shut it down. Right. Uh, and they won't really let the guests really talk. And or they don't say find them in the first place. Exactly. They won't even give them the time. Right. Sorry. Well, look what we're doing here. We've got a person from another internet radio show basically right here on our show. We're not afraid to incorporate other voices. That's what makes us somewhat different than some of these other um, – I don't want to use the term elitist, but I think that is closer to a good definition. I I, I can't support that definition, Matt, only because it's not – an elitist would apply that they're – that's an intentional move. I don't think it's intentional. I just think that they don't understand it has to be fair and balanced. I think they think that it's a conversation and that you should just be able to have a conversation with somebody. And if I'm having a conversation with you and you're telling me something that I don't want to hear, I'm like, now, now, stop right there. (laughs) You know, because that's just the way. This is the wrong word, but you understand what I'm talking about. I understand what you mean. I I understand the, the concept behind it. It's that they're, you know, they're not willing to let the other sides be heard right. and you know we we have to do that because if we don't we'll get kicked off the air because it's it's a public radio station it's we're supposed to you know present all different sides of it and there's been hosts on this station and other stations like it that have been booted off the air for not you know taking opposing views so we have to do that and i think that that and the fact that i'm a journalist and the fact that moniz is a scientist and the fact that Mo, uh, Matt Costa has never tried to influence anybody's opinion in any way. <laughs> you know, he's led people to trouble, but he's never tried to uh, influence opinion. You know, we're not the type of people that wouldn't present a balanced show anyway. I don't want to just hear people tell me what I think, because I talk to myself and I hear what I think all day long. Right. Yeah. And I know what I think. <laughs> I think it's time to do the week and weird. What do you think, Matt Costa? I think so. All right, let's do it. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today, but it's a wonderful weird stuff. The week and weird. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the week and weird. All right, and our first story actually comes from the local, let me correct myself there. This is a local story that was produced here in our local newspaper, which I can't say the name of the internet. But uh, it has been also picked up by the EP, so wherever you are, you might have heard this story. 
It comes from the city of New Bedford. The woman accused of stabbing her stepsister will undergo psychiatric evaluation after her father testified in New Bedford District Court on Wednesday that she believed she was, quote, talking with spirits. Sheila DePina, 20, uh, of 15 Orchard Ave, Brockton, was ordered by Judge Catherine Hand to have a 20-day evaluation, and Ms. DePina is due back in court February 4th for a status hearing. She allegedly attacked her 13-year-old stepsister with a kitchen knife late Monday night while the girl was sleeping in a bedroom they share. Ms. DePina, who grew up in Brockton, had moved in with her father and stepsister two months ago at 102 Marshall Street in New Bedford. Uh, the victim was treated and released from a Rhode Island hospital Tuesday morning. Ms. DePina is charged with assault with intent to murder and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. Her father, John, was called to the stand by Mr. De- Ms. DePina's defense lawyer, and he said she had shown signs of mental distress over the past two years. She thinks she's talking with spirits, he said during the late morning hear- hearing. At the time of the attack, it was as though his daughter was not really herself, he said. It wasn't her who did it. I don't know who she was. Just before 11.30 p.m. on Monday, Mr. DePina was awakened by screaming from his daughter's bedroom. When he called 911, Sheila DePina attacked him with a frying pan. He was forced to tackle her, according to police. After the attack, John DePina discovered on his daughter's bedroom floor a heart-shaped box with a photo of the victim in it covered by a purple cloth, he said after the hearing. Mr. Pina's attorney, Benjamin Evans, told Judge Han he believes there is an issue with his client's competency. Paul Machado, a Bristol County Assistant District Attorney, agreed an evaluation is appropriate. Judge Han ordered the psychiatric evaluation and kept the bail at $25,000 cash. So Mr. DePina uh, gave an interview afterward. He shed more light on his daughter's apparent declining mental health in the past two years. The increasingly strange behavior followed the violent deaths of two friends and unrelated incidents, and she has since embraced non-traditional religious beliefs, he said. She wept sometimes, and in the two months since, she moved in at the Marshall Street address. She never wanted to go anywhere. While she was raised Catholic, she heard, quote, demonic voices and read spiritual books, Mr. DePina said. She practiced this religion by herself and was not part of any organized group. So uh, they are trying to seek some mental help for her as well, but I contacted a few of the uh, people that we know that are somewhat authorities on cults and, and these types of religions. Of course, we talked with Alan about it uh, before the show, and, and he said that there was there seems to be something to some of the imagery, especially the, the purple cloth. Um, I talked to Lauren Coleman, who has a history of working with troubled teens, and, and he first made the connection of the purple cloth with Heaven's Gate. So he said, you know, they're, they're, but he was just free associating. Uh, and Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who's written a number of books on, on these types of religions, uh, also said that nothing really stood out, but that, you know, she thinks over time there might be some, some more information that comes to light that can allow us to piece all this stuff together. So, I think, uh, well, I mean, just the first thing that pops into my head is, in, in, especially in Catholicism, purple is the color of um, pre-resurrection. So it's the color of Lent. So especially she's uh, she's communicating with spirits who she believes to be the spirits of her uh, friends who have passed. That purple might have something to do with some kind of resurrection of them or some kind of uh, thing, uh, something associated with bringing back or or at least keeping alive. Well, we'll so definitely that's my uh, first. Although it, I think that you know the tracks of the of the of the cult crimes that happened in, in Freetown and everywhere is right there, and that he's very specific to say she did not belong to a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, here's everything she did not belong to a cult, and of course they sent her to. Either in the they one that I read, I think it said either Bridgewater or Taunton. Uh, so Taunton State Hospital or Bridgewater State Hospital. Right. So out of the frying pan into the fran- into the pan or into the fire. So so we will keep an eye on that story as it develops, uh, and there will be more information. But you know, just we're not judging anybody here, and certainly mm-hmm. not. I mean, this this is a person that needs help, but uh, we will keep an eye on some of the connections there. All right, uh, we'll go over to Matt Costa. Matt Costa, what do you have for us? 
Alright, from uh, CNN.com. In Hayden, Idaho, a man who believed he bore the, the mark of the beast used a circular saw to cut off one hand, then cooked it in the microwave and called 911. The man in his mid-twenties was was calm when... I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Kootenai County Sheriff's deputies arrived in the northern Idaho town. He was in protect, protective custody in the mental health unit of the medical center. Sheriff's Captain Ben Wolfinger said the hand had been somewhat cooked by the time the deputy had arrived. It was not immediately clear whether the man had a history of mental illness. Hospital spokeswoman Lisa Johnson would not say whether an attempt was made to reattach the hand citing patient confidentiality. In the book of Revelation in the New Testament, contains a pa- contains a passage in which an angel is quoted as saying, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury. The book of Matthew also contains a passage, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose a party, part of your body than your whole body to hell. Though we don't really know which uh, hand he actually cut off. So, that's that. <laughs> give, give this guy a round of applause. applause. There you go. What is the sound of one hand clapping? I guess this guy knows now. That's me. That's my D. Somebody's life will mess with Overnight shift to be classified as probable cancer cause. Like UV rays and diesel fume exhausts, working the graveyard shift will soon be listed as a probable cause for cancer and is based on research that finds higher rates of breast and prostate cancer among women and men who work day, whose workday starts after dark. Next month, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, a branch of the World Health Organization, will add overnight shift work as a probable carcinogen. Up to now, the organization has considered the work cancer link to be uncertain or controversial and unproven. However, the higher cancer rates does not prove working overnight can cause cancer. Uh, sorry about that. However, the higher cancer rates don't prove working overnight can cause cancer. There may be other factors common among graveyard shift workers that rise their risk for cancer. Those scientists do you suspect that overnight work is dangerous because it disrupts the body's biological clock? The hormone melatonin, which can suppress tumor development, is normally produced at night. If the graveyard shift theory eventually proves correct, millions of people worldwide could be affected. Experts estimate that almost 20% of the working population in developed countries works the overnight shift because these studies mostly Focus on nurses and airline crews. Bigger studies in different populations are needed to confirm or disprove the findings. Hmm. All right, here we go. Here's one from the Pravda website, so buyer beware. Extraterrestrial beings have finally been taped on video, the head of the Turkish UFO center, Haktan Agdogan, said. The ufologist said at a pre- uh, excuse me, the ufologist said at a special press conference in Istanbul that a local resident, a watchman from one of two... Uh, wait a minute here, I'm all confused. A watchman from one of Cottage Townships managed to film an extraterrestrial spaceship and two aliens. The lucky man, 
named as Yalsin Yalman, presented his 22-minute video to reporters. The video can be found on the SpookySouthCoast.com website. Hakton Agdogan said that the tape will evoke a wide response in the world because it is the first ever footage that depicts not only a UFO per se, but its shining metallic surface. More importantly, silhouettes of two extraterrestrial beings are clearly visible on the tape. Recent notable sightings of unidentified flying objects took place in 2007. Eyewitness Avzal Khan told CNN IBN that he photographed a UFO on May 28, 2007. He said as such, Today, Monday, at around 9 p.m. Istanbul Standard Time, I and my brothers saw a bright, slow-moving object, which looked like a group of lights moving in a triangular formation in the sky towards west-northwest direction. This object was definitely not an aeroplane, as it was moving very slowly. We observed the object from around 9 p.m. until 9.30 p.m. before it disappeared into the distance. During this time, we managed to take some pictures with my camera. The astronomical space science departments of, of any activity in the sky during the above time can be confirmed. All right, thank you, Pravda. We live in Jayanagar area of Bangalore. Another thing that we noticed during this time was an aircraft that took off from Bangalore Airport was flying very close to this object. It is possible that the pilot of that aircraft could have spotted this object as well. That's uh, what this guy has to say. And finishing up the article from Pravda, many people claimed to see a UFO near Eastern Metropolitan Bypass near Calcutta on October 30th, 2007. It was also recorded by an amateur videographer. <laughs> and it was a ball of light which some which sometimes hovered, sometimes moved very fast and changed shape and size. The video was broadcast in local news channels. In January of 2008, nine separate lights were spotted moving in an arc formation across the sky at around half past midnight on New Year's Day. Around the globe, many people are said to have reported the exact same lights seen in the sky. And that comes, of course, from Pravda. And I gave you a copy that was like written exactly like it appeared in Pravda. I, I appreciate that. Just yeah. barely, you know. It's a, <laughs> I'm glad I gave you that story too, because Balzano would have oh, butchered yeah, those names. I'm, I'm so lucky, yeah. But I did get a chance to, to catch that video. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet. The the whole 22 minute uh, extravaganza. No, I haven't seen it. But uh, one of the writers from my website, Leslie Gunter, who also writes for UFO Magazine, she did see it, and uh, she was not impressed. So I I, I hold her opinion in high regard. Well, so. One of the first things that that kind of caught on is they're telling the story of how they came out and caught it on this night, and the video footage actually, you know, the the time code on the camera changes. It's like August, then November, then November 27th. Yeah. And it's the same motion of this ship whatever it is every time and there's two little tiny figures sitting between the two things it looks like like if uh you know if you and chris were riding here in like a roadster convertible and had <laughs> one arm around the other one while you're driving you know it like looks like that so i don't think that's how they would travel to this world if they did i think they'd kind of have to have some sort of shield covering or something my guess <laughs> day night in the universe okay keeping our eyes to the sky uh, from the Telegraph in the UK, amateur UFO investigators are to descend upon a farming community in Texas where dozens of people reported seeing mysterious lights in the sky. A pilot, policeman, and local business owners are among those who insist they have seen a silent object with bright lights flying low and fast over the town of Stephenville, 60 miles southwest of Fort Worth. Some said they saw fighter jets chasing the craft, which was mostly spotted on one evening, January 8th. The local Air Force base said none of its planes were in the area last week. 
A spokesman has suggested that the UFO might have been an illusion created by a sunset falling on commercial airliners. Unconvinced, local people insist the object was larger, quieter, faster, and closer to the ground than an airplane. Steve Allen, a pilot and freight co- freight company owner, said... And one-time great talk show host. And one t- <laughs> inventor of the POG. Uh, people wonder what in the world it is because this is the Bible Belt, and everyone is afraid it's the end of days. Mr. Allen described the object he saw as a mile long and a half mile wide. It was positively absolutely nothing from these parts, he said, looking through the telescopic sight of his rifle. Ricky Sorrells, a machinist, said he saw a flat and seamless metallic object hovering about 300 feet over a field. Leroy Gatan, an Arath County constable, said, I didn't see a flying saucer and I don't know what it was, but it wasn't an airplane. I've never seen anything like it. He added... I think it must have been some kind of military craft. At least I hope it was. The U.S. Air Force no longer investigates UFOs. Around 200 UFO sightings were reported each month, mostly in California, Colorado, and Texas, according to the Mutual UFO Network, which plans to visit Stephenville next weekend. 14% of Americans polled last year said they have seen a UFO. And that, of course, came from a U.K. newspaper, because if you try to get the American account, it's just a a bunch of jokes and, you know, crazy people are out in Texas looking for (laughs) UFOs. Looking at their, through the sights of their rifles. That's the most thing. For proof of life beyond us. That's the most handiest thing. It is. It's right there, in the back of the truck. That guy actually saw an interview on him. He actually was saying uh, he was going to take a shot. He's just like, but I didn't want to start anything, like an interstellar like, war. You know? I was just like, well, you know, idea. I, ironically, not that it has anything to do with this, but I was I was just watching uh, earlier this afternoon the episode of the X Files, where it was the first season, and they have the EBE episode where the the trucker is transporting the ship, and they show the ship flying out, and this guy comes out with a rifle and starts shooting at it, like like it's going to do something. I was wondering whether it had anything to do with uh, T.O. crying last week and any possible grief or grief-associated trauma. Or, uh, you know You know what? They're probably going to say that the, the spaceship had something to do with Jessica Simpson. It did. And yeah. that's why it threw off Tony Romo's game. <laughs> so we bring it all together here on Spooky South Coast. That is the Week in Weird. If you have any stories that you think are a little bit strange and unusual, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the message board link, and you can drop it in there somewhere, and we'll read it. We'll read it on the air. We'll give you credit. We'll also give you a bumper sticker. So uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with more about dark woods, cults, crime, and paranormal in the Freetown State Forest here on Spooky South Coast. Into the woods prepared to find out Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. I think that's a a very good idea. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Oh, you can't tease it during the commercial. It just kind of goes like, Matt, 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 Matt. You should know like uh, the the Queen Flash Gordon song. Matt, Moniz, Science Advisor. 
He'll save every one of us. <laughs> you're going to edit all this out of the podcast, hopefully. Oh, uh, baby. Over the people, the 99 will be hearing my... Uh... They have Sirius over there. <laughs> I think I'm just going to get fired from Metroid Satellite Radio on WBSM. But we are here in WBSM, putting the BS in WBSM each and every week. We are Spooky South Coast. I was going to say putting the S&M in BSM, but okay. Uh, I have Tim Weisberg, and with me, uh, at least for now, until the station management pulls us, is the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And believe it or not, the gentleman whose voice you're hearing is actually a published author. Yes. A noted published author. And yes. uh, he has written a book called Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. And in the first hour, we talked a lot about the – oh, his name is Christopher Balzano. In case you didn't know by now, Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website. Um, we talked a lot about the crime in the first hour because mm-hmm. – you know, you've been making the rounds talking about the paranormal stuff, and I, I wanted to get a first-hand account from Alan Alves, the detective who had investigated right. many of these cases. And to, plus, to this area, that that means something. Right, right. I mean, some of the people that I've been talking to, or just kind of like, whether it's feedback about the book, or I'm on someone's show, it, it is kind of, okay, enough of that. Let's let's talk about the ghosts. Yeah, the um, ghosts, and the zombies. Okay, that's, that's fine. But I mean, there is, you know, especially this area, you don't have to describe... Freetown for people to understand exactly the magnitude of what was going on there. And and all that stuff is still, you know, James Cater is still alive and in jail. Robin Murphy is walking the streets. These are people that, you know, are – Carl drew, drew me a picture. These are all things that, you know, are alive and well in, in people's minds. I mean, just the mere fact that I kind of start out, I think, the crime section or the, at least a section on it talking about how there were a few – there were murder uh, – now it would be like three years ago – and the first thing that all the message boards popped up with was all this conversation about the highway killer is back. Mm-hmm. So these are things that are very much, the crime-wise, crime wise, very much on people's minds. But it was the paranormal that first drew you down to the region in the first place. It was. And we've talked about it in the past before, but you got some of these initial reports, and it was enough to make you come down here, which is, is not an easy thing. Unless easy it's thing. either the paranormal in the Freetown State Forest or Spooky South Coast. <laughs> Otherwise, we can't get you down here. But, I mean... When you started to come down and realize that this stuff was going on, I mean, what was the predominant rep- report you were getting early on? The first reports I was getting, I was getting early on were first of the ledge, uh, the Asanet ledge, um, and second of Native American spirits that people were seeing. Um, and those were kind of the first things that I wanted to investigate. Just a lot of um, – actually, I didn't get reservation stories, stories about ghosts from the, uh, the actual reservation, the Wampanoag reservation that's on the, the property of the forest. Um, but I was getting – Wow, you know, I know it's, I've heard this before, the story before. You've probably heard it before about people, but let me tell you this story, people in the road, but let me tell you this story. And people would just kind of share these random things, or mainly because they had read my article on the Redheaded Hitchhiker, mm-hmm. they wanted to share something very similar, and they were Native Americans, and they were in the forest. So those were kind of the first ones that I started to, to pick up, and then it kind of became, you know, I, I got one or two reports about the Asanet Ledge, and, uh, and that's kind of where I kind of started with those two places, and just the more that I kind of posted about those two places and the more I just kind of, you know, some one person contact another person, contact another person, I just started getting all these reports that kind of expanded throughout the forest, a lot of which never made it to the book. So, I mean, there definitely is, you know, enough out there that there's, there, there could at least, you know, I'm, I'm planning on kind of publishing some follow-up reports on my website so that people can kind of see some of the other stuff, activities going on. And just uh, as an aside, too, I don't know if you're aware, but there is a, another book operating under the title of Dark Woods. There are several Dark Woods well, books. There is uh, there's one that just came out recently about a uh, haunted location up in Maine, and mm-hmm. it was the one that was redone on uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. 
Right. And I'm actually going to get in contact with those people. They're actually university professors, the, the couple that live in the house and wrote the book. But because I think I was actually in that home at one point. Right. Uh, just as, as something I was doing up in Maine years ago, and I think I was actually there. And, but it's just it's the same thing. You know, you hear these stories and you have these experiences, and all right. it takes is for you know somebody to put a book together and you say, yes, I've had an experience, and now now I feel comfortable right, talking right. about it. So there is plenty of room for follow-up reports. My, my goal is there's one story in there where I focus on some um, some children in a neighborhood, some uh, young boys in a neighborhood who were all experiencing the same haunting for years. That's the creepiest story. Until they finally, one of them said something, and then they all kind of started making all these connections. I would love to have uh, one of them read the book, and either they haven't shared their experience yet, they didn't, you know, didn't know that they, the rest of the, stu- you know, the kids in the neighborhood were doing it, or some of the other people that, that had done that read that book, you know, find some kind of either comfort in it or at least shocked enough that they, they contact me about that. And I, that's that's the effect that I'm hoping to have because, you know, what I do is I'm not I'm not necessarily the strongest investigator out there. I'm someone who enjoys the story and, and connecting with people and kind of sharing this and kind of seeing how it all fits in. So, But also, you know, part of your job in running the Mass Crossroads is distinguishing between what is folklore and what is actual investigative right. reports. How much folklore did you run into, did you run up against in putting this book together? Um, there's stuff that didn't make it in um, that I just didn't think was credible. I wouldn't call it folklore. I just think that someone was... Well, you know, a, either associating, you know, one thing or there's stuff that I passed off to Pittman because I felt that it was more UFO-like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing in that book that I considered folklore that I didn't say, I think this is folklore. And I think that if you, you know, if you read the book, even some of the stuff with the Asanet Ledge, um, you know, the, the, the Mad Trucker of Copacut Road, uh, if I think that it's a it's, it's it's an urban legend that people are just kind of associating, then I say it. Or if I think mm-hmm. it's kind of you know parts of it sound more folklory, then I mention it. So I'm, I'm you know that I you know that I love that kind of connection. I love those things, but I make very clear what I think is, uh, you know, you know, lore kind of imposing but itself upon the paranormal. You're also one of the few that do that work that will string them together with you know you'll say okay the redheaded hitchhiker of route 44 there's similar stories coming from every area of the country right. they all have this lonely hitchhiker guy who you know it's the same type of story you pick him up and he disappears right. but you're also not discrediting the fact that it happens on route 44 either no i think that there's a connection between folklore and the paranormal and sometimes it's just i mean an excellent example of that is, is mr moniz who experienced something at the asanet ledge he knows he did if we believe that he's not insane then, then we know that he it's had this jury experience. Still out or or jury still out. So I'm, you know, I'm considering him a credible witness, but who knows? Uh, and yet, the lore attached to that spirit that he saw sound—I mean, is—it's got to be folklore. Um, and yet, Matt Mooney saw it. Matt Mooney's experienced it, and you know, kind of didn't even know that there was this mythology to this person until he actually came out and, and shared the experience. That's what I found so weird because I distinctly saw the person there. There was no question in my mind that this woman was standing right there where she was standing and then to have the people that were familiar with that legend turn around and tell me yeah this is what you know what we've heard growing up and this is the story and it's like because there there is only one way she could have gotten you know by us and that would have been straight down because she had to where where she was at she would had to walk by us and 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 actually, that that she couldn't have even done that because from where you kind of pointed out where she was, if she had jumped, she would have been on one of the lower cliffs. That's only probably a ten foot drop, and so she would have been crying in pain from having hit rocks ten, 
you know, yeah. ten, 10 feet below her. So. Yeah, right. you understand exactly yeah, um, what I'm talking right, about. Right, right. And, you know, and, and a very similar thing with there's, there's another experience which sounds almost identical to the redheaded hitchhiker kind of thing. Car driving, people run through it, they get out, uh, they investigate, oh, we didn't hit anyone. Classic hitchhiker's ghost in the road encounter, right? On the way back, the headlights turn on and then blink twice. Well, that sounds like a great piece of folklore, and yet it blinks twice and not three times. And so that kind of like little variant of it, I don't think is make. I don't, I don't think makes it folklore. I think it makes a true haunting because if someone was going to tell me a folklore, or, they would say the three because that's kind of what's known. Instead, they say two. So it's those kind of like very subtle things that I also look for when I'm when I'm getting reports from people. I think we have a call for you, Chris. Good evening, around Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Good. How are you? All right. Uh, a couple of months ago, he mentioned something about Copacut Road. Mm-hmm. What uh, the one in Dartmouth? Uh, it's actually the one in Freetown. Okay, because there's also Copacut Road in Dartmouth, North Dartmouth. Does it run into Does it run into Dartmouth or oh, North Dartmouth? Yeah, I don't. I don't. It, it might. It might on the yeah. Uh, I wouldn't yeah, be, the yeah, other I wouldn't side be surprised because yeah. I mean, it runs the, into nothing. The forest touches the forest touches Dartmouth, right? right, right. Dartmouth, so. Yeah, right, it goes way in. <clears throat> you, you, you had an experience there yourself? Friends, friends and, well, we used to hang around there, you know, kids had nothing better to do. And uh, I had told you uh, a few months ago, we'd see lights, and I mean, mm-hmm. there was, it wasn't a good place. And I mean, we, was, we used to hustle around over there, but it, it, we should have stayed out of there because uh, it wasn't. It was just a bad feeling, or it was, was it? It just, it, it was, especially when you see all the torches and find goats' heads and goats upside down, and I mean, I mean, we should have had enough brain to get out, you know, stay away from there, but. So we but, actually got close enough to, I remember you talking about it before, but just for people who weren't were listening that night, you actually got close enough to see some of these signs of this activity out there. I mean, there was, you know, when I, we saw the torches, we just, you know, I was going to see all these little lights realize how many people's actually <laughs> in the woods, you know. And, I mean, we got close enough to see that, uh, you know, that wasn't a good place to be. But there was, I mean, I, I guess about 20, 30 of them. And how long ago was this? 1975. There you go. So, yeah, it was at the time mm-hmm. when they were very active right, out there. Right. But uh, the thing that uh, got me the most, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, uh, this guy was... Uh, <clears throat> leaving notes in people's mail about uh, they had rays on. They were shooting rays at him, and he was he had all aluminum foil on his windows. Do you remember that? I don't remember it. No. No. Well, he lived, anyways, he lived uh, near the beach, near uh, east, right off East Rodney French Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, one day we came home anyways, and we, everybody's noticing this guy. They got letters in their mail. It was from the same person. Uh, he needs help, you know what I mean? The, the government's trying to get him and all this. And, uh, and uh, so everybody, of course, he had his address there, so everybody went there. And sure enough, he had a single-family house, and all the windows had aluminum foil on it. You know what I mean? There was this, there was a kook. Must have been hot as hell in the summertime. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a big what, potato. What got me was when we used to go to Copacar, See, I know this at the time, but there was a house. All it was was a stand there was a chimney. A house had burned down over there. I mean, I didn't know anything about, you know, the history of it. Come to find out, uh, a few years after that, I think it was 1978, 
a friend of mine, his sister, we were just talking. She wasn't supposed to talk about patients, but she brought up about him, about the guy with the foil. That was his house in at Copaca, and he nailed the door shut on it. He and his wife in the bathroom. He set the house on fire. Huh. It just was, you know, coincidence of. Remember, I remember seeing. That. I remember always seeing that chimney. You know, saying, "Would you what the heck happened there?" But it just was. It was just bad. It just wasn't a good feeling over there. The, I mean, there was, uh, you know, the 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 thing that happened was it was nothing spooky. Just that. Yeah, I think that that's kind of like one of the things that kind of really happens in that area is that it there's this energy and it just manifests itself different ways. So sometimes, you know, and that's why I think the cults are attracted to it. I think it's a natural place because of the, you know, uh, geography of it like Dallin talked about, but then also because there seems to be some kind of energy that's living there. And that energy just manifests itself different ways, just like throughout the Bridgewater Triangle, but I feel it's really concentrated in the Freetown State Forest. So, for example, some people suffer mental health disease when they really sh- shouldn't, you know, mm-hmm. or they might not under those circumstances. It's kind of a breaking point. Or ghosts, or the other type of paranormal activity. Sure. Or it attracts crime. All right, well, we thank you for calling and sharing. We're going to take much. a break. Yeah, no problem. But uh, we will be right back. On the other side of that break, we'll wrap things up talking more about dark woods, cults, crime, and the paranormal in the Freetown State Forest with author Christopher Balzano. Be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Oh, another theme go, song for you. Yeah. <laughs> Crossroads. There you go. Because you run the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads. Paranormal. I see the connection. Yes. Does the does the devil meet you there and you have to make a deal? Is that <laughs> did you did you make a deal for uh, the inspiration well, for Dark Woods? Is that why it's tied no, into these cults? No, no, I, I He's uh, like, Chris, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you a book deal <laughs> if you write my autobiography. Right, it actually like I said, it's um I don't know why the devil talks like David Letterman <laughs> doing the dumb guy voice. <laughs> But it's, uh, yeah, it's actually, you shall publish a book, but the grammar will be bad. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's kind of like that's, like, that's the devil the, twist the right there. The grammar's not bad. Uh, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question, Chris, uh, just sure. based on what you had said before the break. And you talking about the energy and mm-hmm. how uh, it seems to have effect on people there. Do you think the energy is, um, for lack of a better term, sentient energy? Is there uh, a motivation behind it? Or do you think it may be a natural sort of situation where, you know, 10, 20 years from now, once science catches up with the paranormal, we're going to look at it and say, oh, it turns out all this stuff was happening in Freetown because it's on a fault line and that releases, you know, geomagnetic energies, blah, blah, blah. No, I, I think that it's, it's energy trapped. I don't think it's – in other words, I don't think it has a purpose. I don't think it has a uh, motivation. I think it's just been recycled and recycled for so long that it's just, it's just, the, it's just so powerful that it's sucking things in. So I don't, I don't know if we'll ever be able to break that. Or whether, or whether even just be able to quantify it, but I mean, I think that it's it's something that. Uh, Why does it seem to gear toward the negative, though? Because negative attracts negative. In my opinion, I think that you know, because I mean, whereas and I should say that people in the forest, I know of people who practice uh, very positive religions in the forest as well, mm-hmm. because they feel the energy there. Um, but I think that a lot of the. Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of the, the negative things are maybe because they, they get more they, press. Negative is more noteworthy. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a lot more, you know, I mean. Well, there's probably higher the, numbers of the negative, unfortunately, than the positive. Right. And there's also no one's ever heard of a positive crime. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, in terms of. <laughs> I can think of a few, but. <laughs> well. There wouldn't be positive no, I think, people on the other end of them. 
No, but I, th- I think that you know it doesn't make people necessarily evil. It just ma- it just kind of you know amplifies things that are going on and draws them in. And we're running low on time here before the end of the program, so we've hardly really gotten a chance to touch on some of these stories that come out of the book. So that's the perfect reason to go say, out and yeah. pick it up. So you, now you're going to have to go out and get the book just so you can uh, you can hear about the Copaca Road and 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 the Sonnet Ledge and and you know the Crystal Springs, which I've never, I don't think I've ever been really kind of discussed with a lot of people that. Uh, uh, that have, haven't read the book, so it's definitely there's enough in there that you can hopefully kind of enjoy what we've talked about tonight, but then kind of see a lot of the other little things that are going on there. Out of everything that you heard, and and let's just focus on what made the book, okay? Not just some of the stuff that you cut out because mm-hmm. you couldn't really verify. Out of everything that's in the book, what seems the least believable to you? Uh, the Mad Trucker. The Mad Trucker, I think, is is the least believable. Although I think, like that that gentleman just called uh, was saying, I think there is something to the energy there, mm-hmm. an energy on the road, and Lord knows that it, you know, can destroy things. Um, but I think that um, I think that was one person um, who posted it someplace that she had heard it from someone else. Uh, so in terms of like, even in terms of being a strong myth, it's not. Yeah. Really, it's not really doesn't have a lot of substance. There hasn't been enough right, evidence right, of that manifestation. Right. So it's just kind of like you know, it, it's probably more an example of how uh, quickly um, the community can accept something and kind of react to it very quickly than as opposed to even a legend or especially not a haunting. So I don't, I don't think that that's that's probably the least likely to be a haunted place. And, and I know the story, story, the story that you said was the one that was the most interesting to you was the one about the the witch. Definitely, type figure. definitely. Because I, I went there with him, and he hadn't been there in, in years. And uh, we went there together, and we looked at that foundation, and it was almost kind of like a therapeutic uh, thing for him because he had been traumatized by this. He had been traumatized enough to contact, even though he wasn't really that much into the paranormal, to contact some, some guy who does ghost stories mm-hmm. um, years after it had happened with his girlfriend because you know he, he felt that compelled with it. Um, and we were out there at that foundation, and, and it just kind of you could see – you could see kind of his face change and him actually kind of getting over it to, to, to a degree. So that was kind of weird in a psychological way as well. I was going to say, you know, I'd, I'd heard the story before. Uh, you've told the story uh, here on the show. Mm-hmm. And I remember when you first started researching this and talking to these people, you were telling me about it. So uh, I've heard it many, many times. And when I read it, it's still the same effect. It still sent that shiver down my the shiver down my spine and it's the only story in the book that i had become kind of numb to like right. okay I've, I've i've heard this i've heard this. it's right. the one that still i can just picture myself being in that situation because it has a heart which is really kind of what you know the paranormal is it's the paranormal is you know paranormal experience it's an experience it's something that affected someone and i think that that story kind of lives on especially in those uh all those little boys that are now adults that are now young adults that are still going to have this this witch kind of hovering over them, or at least the, rem- the, the memory of her. So you can read about that and more in Darkwoods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. And why don't you tell everybody uh, where they can get the book? Um, you can get the book uh, through my website. It links to uh, Schiffer Books. Uh, that's SchifferBooks.com. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, if you're local, you can get it hopefully in uh, any bookstore that's around here. And if they're not selling it, uh, request it and kind of bang on the windows till they do. Uh, otherwise, you can get in contact with me. I'm going to be setting up something where I'm going to be selling it through my website as well. But, I mean, it's it's uh, all the Internet outlets and and uh, and hopefully some local outlets. We're going to have you at our birthday party, uh, pimping some copies there as well. And we're, we're going to get you some in-stores down here in the New Bedford area because I know people are going to be coming out in droves to pick up a copy of this. And uh, they can also order it very soon on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Uh-huh. So right. through, through SpookySouthCoast.com as well because, you know, uh, and I might be offering a deal where you can get the uh, you know Bridgewater Triangle CD with the book. 
Oh. Uh, oh, as an added guy. bonus at a discount. So I'm gonna be. I'm gonna try to. Uh, I'm not gonna let you guys take my uh, my audience. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna I was take gonna my say, readership. I was gonna say we can link it to yours, but if that's the one we want to play, we'll throw in a spooky South Coast bumper sticker. <laughs> I have an and a pen. I was gonna say I, if you order now, I still have five <laughs> spooky South Coast pens at my house. Those <laughs> are great pens. We have to say it every time, but they are great pens. They really are. They really are. But uh, Tim Banal of Banal of America, we thank you for your hard work on the website. That'll debut next Saturday. We'll have it up and ready by then. And people will be able to get all of our future shows that way and great information. We're going to have guest blogs. And I'm uh, not going to be on the show next week, right? N- not that I know okay. of. I haven't really planned next week's show yet. <laughs> Are you doing anything? Uh, no, not really. All so. right. Well, no, so I'll, stay by the I'll, phone. I'll be it, yeah. <laughs> stay by the phone. But uh, we, will, uh, we will have that up and going. And, and you can always go to Tim's site, banalofamerica.com. I like, I like when you do it better. All right. B-I-N-N-A-L-L-O-F-A-M-E-R-I-C-A.com, banalofamerica.com, or just go to Google, type in B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and uh, you'll find me pretty easily. There you go. And uh, Lucky, of course, is always coming up here and, and bothering Matt Moniz. Bothering, bother, bother, <laughs> bother, bother. But uh, I'm sure we'll get you back into Lizzie's real soon to continue your work there as well. Uh, yes, I plan on at least once a month going in there and doing some uh, – Research and see George uh, regular like regular long term investigation <laughs> of a haunted location. Yeah, that's 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 it. I mean, I have a lot. I have probably have about twenty five hours more of stuff to go through. Still from the last two times I've been there, so I really have to stop. You know, you need to get a, like a team of people together that can just analyze. I actually you. have a couple people that are doing stuff for me. There you right go. Now. So. Just uh, dole out the responsibility. That's what we do here. You actually need an entire high school class. So if you uh, if you want to start a uh a joint thing with me in my high school. We'd love to look at your evidence. There you go. All right. And, of course, Matt Moniz uh, is going to be making some appearances coming up real soon. He's going to be at TAPSCon. Uh, that's coming up in the summertime, uh, June. July. July. Ghost Rush, which is coming up in March. And the New Jersey UFO Conference, that's in February. Yes. And we're going to have links up to all those on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Uh, you can actually check out the websites for each and see some of the other speakers. But all you need to know is that Matt Moniz is going to be there. That's reason enough to go. All right, so for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Tim Banal, Chris Balzano, lucky. You just get one name like Bono. <laughs> and for our former Freetown detective, Alan Alves, southcoasthypnosis.com. Throw one more out there. We want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although... In many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.